It's episode 63 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and joining me today are Ryan Top and J.P. Breen. So, how are you guys doing? I'm okay. We got a game seven. It didn't quite go how we wanted it to. That's an understatement, Steve. It is. But, J.P., what did you think of the game last night? I thought about half of it was a lot of fun. Uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of crotch chopping. There were really interesting plays. Yelich hit a homer to go, and so like a lot of it was just like peak postseason baseball, where there were some villains, you know, that the crowd really hated. There was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of energy. It was close for a long time, and then the end of the game kind of sucked. Yeah. So I didn't start booing Manny Machado until his third at bat on Friday night. I like let it go the first couple of at bats, but then once it started, it was really hard to stop. And I just booed very loud. And that's, I think, contributing to the fact that I can't talk right now. Yeah. I, and, you know, that's kind of the fun thing to get into. Like, like JP mentioned, the, uh, the villains of the postseason. You know, when you're in it, just embrace it. Embrace it for what it is. You know, I think we can all distinguish the difference between baseball and actual villains. So. Would you have booed him loudly if you were there, Steve? Uh, no, I'm pretty stoic. I would have just probably stood there and enjoyed everybody else raining booze down on him. You would have yelled out, boo this man. Probably. And I would have supported any kind of retaliation the Brewers would have had. Physical <laughs> violence is fine. I just won't like verbalize it. <laughs> so anyways, you can help fans, uh, fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons will receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon Ford Brewing. From Dragon Flute to Block Party to Fantasy Factory IPA, K4 specializes in English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Uh, out now is Night Call Smoked Porter and the Downton Apple Apple Ale. So check that one out. Those are packaged. You can find them in stores. And then Fantasy Factory IPA is now in cans. Obviously, we're past the playoffs, so you can't take that tailgate anymore. But, you know, plan on that next spring because it's going to be here before you know it. we got a shorter offseason now, right? Yeah, it, it is weird how we're like, normally we have to find things to talk about during October. Well, we had to last year. Well, last year, I think this is when we did like, oh, here are, uh, you know, major league awards. Here are minor league awards. We kind of dedicated podcast to all that. And, yeah, it'll be. We get to do that in November this year yeah, before gonna... the uh well, because then that led to like a long November of nothing to talk about because baseball wasn't moving, like nothing was happening. Yeah. So, you know, now we can push that back. We get November. to push all of that back. So thank you, Brewers, for giving us stuff to talk about in a shortened off season. Uh, anyways, uh, don't forget, we have a deal exclusively through uh, Milwaukee's Tailgate for Carbon 4. Use the promo MKE Tailgate in the Carbon 4 web store and receive 20% off your order. Visit the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard in Madison or find their beer in your local retailer. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. Uh, 
And if you're looking to create a professional sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so you guys did an emergency podcast. We put it up on Patreon, and, and you kind of previewed games 6 and 7. So Yeah, a little bit of back talk, and then mostly looking forward. So, um, you know, we had Wade Miley go in game 6. He gave us four and a third innings, five hits, two runs. Um, you know, I think it was definitely all we could kind of ask for from Wade Miley at that point, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he's been, and really all the starters in this in the, this entire playoffs have been outstanding, which is really the funny thing because you look at what we would have expected and it was going to be, you know, the bullpen was going to be carrying them and they just needed to survive the starters. Well, that wasn't how it played out really at all. The starters were by and large excellent and it was, you know, certain spots in the bullpen that caused the problems. So, you know, baseball, who knows? Yeah. So again, that was a seven to two win for the Brewers in game six. Um, after Miley's four four and a third, he gave up two runs. Uh, Knable, Jefferson, Burns came in for four and two thirds, five strikeouts, no walks, no runs. Um, what did you think of the bullpen management? I guess in that game, JP, because they had again Knable, Jefferson, Burns uh, to cover those innings, and then I, they had Hater ready to go, and then game game situation basically allowed them to sit him down and save him for game seven. Yeah, and if you ask John Smoltz, there was nobody in the entire stadium that was more happy that Hader didn't go than John Smoltz. <laughs> and because if you used him, then what could you possibly do for Game 7? Uh, so, yeah, it was a really nice situation that the the kind of circumstances for the game allowed Hader to be saved for, for Game 7. And he went three innings in Game 7, so that was obviously a very positive development. But Knable was awesome. I, I don't really know. It's been, a, what, a month and a half or so of Knable just being absolutely lights out, maybe even a little better than Hader. And no, I think there's no question he's been better than Hader since he came back up. Um, and, well, OK, and we're going to get to this later. Hader pitched 10 innings in the postseason. He had 16 strikeouts. I don't think he gave up a run. And then Knable also pitched 10 innings in the postseason. He had 14 strikeouts. I forget if he let one run score. I don't think it was. He did. Yeah, he had a run score. It wasn't his run, though. He came into a situation. So um, they were both great in the postseason. Sure. Knable's uh, September was just mind-boggling. Like, he had a run there where he struck out, like, 15 of 18 batters he faced or something. I mean, it was just, he was a a holy terror in September, too. What did you think of Burns? Because he, he kind of. He struggled a little bit against the Dodgers earlier in the series, but he was lights out in game six. Dude was throwing a 95-mile-an-hour cutter, which I didn't know that that was a thing that he was going to be able to throw. I thought it was it was a fastball with some natural cut on it, but they actually were showing him on the replay, showing his, uh, his release, and he's actually trying to throw a cutter at 95 miles an hour, which made him borderline unhittable, especially against the righties. And his slider was good his ability to kind of handle both of both sides of the plate uh with his fastball he was throwing 97 in on the hands and then was kind of throwing a little cut piece at 95 on the outer part and he looked he looked dominant i mean i understand that you know we've made fun of john smoltz and i made fun of john smoltz a minute ago um but he was utterly impressed with burns yeah, and, now is that cutter something that he can carry over to the rotation? 
Or is that a, a more limited shelf life pitch for a guy throwing it that hard? Because I know it can do some, they, there's concerns about what it can do to your elbow. Yeah, I would imagine that it's something that he wouldn't rely on so heavily as a starter. So you'd have to back off of it at least somewhat. I mean, Wade Miley's out there throwing 50% cutters, but that's, I guess, a very different situation. So Wade Miley's also throwing 89 miles an hour. So Right. The, the torque is not there at quite the same level, is what you're saying? I'm saying that Wade Miley's basically throwing little sliders, right? It's not like, I mean, Burns was basically throwing what Kenley Jansen is throwing as a mid-90s cutter. That's what I was going to bring up was basically Jansen's the guy we've seen throwing cutters that hard with that kind of success. And that's a closer situation. So it was good to see, though, again, he came out and kind of bounced back from some earlier rough uh, outings. Um, and then Jeremy Jeffress looked great in game six. He w- he was spotting his curve. You know, he was able to spot his fastball. He was keeping it up in the zone because I, I think, you know, other appearances where he'd had trouble. It seemed like pitches were he either wasn't getting it up up in the zone or he wasn't keeping it down in the zone. He was kind of hitting that middle portion. He was hittable there. But game six, they had no chance against Jeffress, which was good to see. Um, and then uh, I, think- I was a little surprised that Jeffress got pulled for Burns when he did, because I'm looking at the, the sequence of that, his first two batters of the eighth inning would have been uh, Machado or um, Turner and Machado. So I kind of figured they would just keep, stay with Jeffers and let him face those first two and then maybe go to Hader with an out or two in the eighth. And then they started scoring. They scored again. And so it, it made it less important, I guess, to, to get that, uh, that shutdown guy in there. And mm-hmm. Burns came in and was so good that they just stayed with him. Yeah, and part of the reason they kept on scoring, uh, Jesus Aguilar was three for four in the game, knocked in three runs. It was finally a, a middle-of-the-order performance uh, to score some runs that they needed. Because it seemed like guys were on base. They just couldn't knock them in for the entire series. Uh, you know, So was that just the missing ingredient they just couldn't get for this entire series? Yeah, I, I think part of it was good pitching by the Dodgers. I don't think there's really that much. You can't get around that. I think the Dodgers pitched very well for the vast majority of the series. But... You also had some key spots, and I'm sure this will some, be something that we talked about uh, for Game 7 as it goes along, but in key spots, even when the Brewers did hit it well, they weren't able to find the grass, basically, right? They, they were finding gloves. I, uh, Ryan Braun hit a few that were kind of scalded that ended up finding the glove. Yelich had that big one uh, that would have changed the complexion of the game, and what we had heard for so long throughout the entire season was that the Brewers were fully reliant on the home run and they couldn't manufacture any runs. And this was the series in which you see the downfall of putting the ball in play, hitting it hard. And sometimes it just doesn't find the hole, right? And sometimes you have a situation in which uh, Max Muncie comes up. I Was it against Jeffress? I can't remember who... Max Muncy ended up starting out that uh, three-run rally. Uh, that was Cedeno. But did yeah, it, I can't remember if Cedeno walked somebody. No, or... Cedeno gave up a hit. So I think Cedeno okay. gave up the hit up the middle, and then Jeffers came in. Muncy, but that was like a really crappy ground ball that just ended up finding a perfect spot between the third baseman and the and the shortstop on the shift. It wasn't hit hard, and 
the Dodgers kind of got a couple of those breaks. The Brewers didn't get a couple of those breaks and the Dodgers were able to take advantage of it by hitting two home runs. Yeah. And- I mean, if you look at how close this series was, I was just peeking at it. The Brewers had a 678 OPS in the series. Um, the Dodgers had a 632 OPS. Well, and okay, here's the thing. Uh, Dodgers win game seven, five to one against the Brewers. Um, And I want to say that they had a stat late in the game where they showed runs scored in the series, like the Brewers were 24 to 23. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it It was, you know, it seemed like the wins, there was the extra inning game, obviously, that was close. And, you know, game one, um, they won by a run. They held on. But for the most part, you know, it seemed like one team or the other would kind of get the the you know handful of runs they needed to to get the win at a time and it, it just kept going back and forth it was an insanely even series listen to the eras dodgers had a 318 era brewers had a 315 era i mean it was this was as tight as it could get even though not all the games were necessarily tight they they sort of would flip flop back and forth like i said the series as a whole was tight even yes even if the even though the weren't. individual games generally weren't like they, you know, the, the games, well, except for when you go 13 innings, <laughs> that's the game. I, I mean, that'll be the game that people will go back to over and over and over again. And will wonder, you know, what could have been because that was the tight game. That was the one where, you know, I, I think you can really make the case. That's what won the series for the Dodgers was. Yeah, that but game. you know what? The, the home team in that game is always going to have the advantage. And, right. The fact and that's that the close out. game played out in L.A. was, yeah, that was the tough part. I mean, I think for me, if you're trying to get to this moment of what could have been, it was game seven. It wasn't that 13 and game. You still have no idea what's going to happen after that, even if the Brewers sure. end up winning. Well, but, I, I mean, we're just saying that was the closest of all the games where just that single run would have been the difference at any point. Right. But I'm thinking like in game seven, Yelich hits that ball into the gap. If that ends up falling and it's 2-2 two, two in, in the fifth in, or the fifth or sixth inning, like this game seven's completely all to play for. Yeah. And that is a moment in which to me that was and and we talked about it before we started right like as soon as that catch happened from taylor and left jeffress ended up coming on ended up giving a three-run homer series was over by the way they also had a stat or i I think i saw it online afterwards that pitch that jeffress threw when he gave up the home run the location of it was out of the zone and puig in like his career has a 143 batting average against it yeah that just sounds Right. It was just one of those things where he, you know, obviously we're watching Jeffress every day for a long time. And, you know, throughout the playoffs, he kind of struggled. So it just seemed like, oh, this is another one. But it was a situation where that wasn't a pitch you would expect Puig to take out. And he did it. Well, I mean, he must have been sitting on it. I, he no, was... Puig, I put on Twitter that he like set up a tent and camped on it like he was. Because Jeffers wasn't throwing his splitter. Like, it just, he didn't throw it a single time. He didn't throw it a single time uh, in game six. He didn't throw it a single time in game seven. He had gone fastball to try to get Puig, and Puig knew that a curveball was coming, and it was about belt high. Yeah, it was a little bit off the plate, but it was something that he could get the barrel of the bat on because it was high enough. And he, he knew exactly what he was looking for, and he was able to center on it. I mean, the fact that he was able to put a barrel on it, he was able to pull it, and he was able to get it in the air. Um, and he was, in general, right? Like we see a, a lot of guys react to 
uh, Jefferson's curveball. And the only time that they're really able to take advantage of it is if he hangs it in the middle of the zone. If he's if if you see a guy sitting back on it and being able to drive the ball to the area of the park, he wants to drive it in on a pitch that was not even in the zone. It was pretty obvious that he was sitting on it the entire time. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was tough when that happened. Um, but, you know, as far as the game flow goes, Shasin starts the game, pitches two innings. He gave up the two-run home run to Bellinger. Um, that was after Yelich had hit the first inning home run. So it was still feeling tight. And they they immediately went to Hayter for three innings. Was that too quick a hook? No. No. For Shasin? No. I, you're, I wondered you're in, in, you're in, in real game time. Seven. You're, you're in game seven. Get your best pitchers in the game, especially if they knew they were going to use Hater for an extended period. Just get him in. And Shasin was not sharp. There's no, there's no, there's no way that I want Shasin going another time through the order. Yeah, Shasin, that's it's fair. He was not sharp. I mean, you end up with really the only damage coming on that one swing because Machado bunted on. But yeah, it probably he probably does give up more runs if he's in there for the third and fourth innings. So. Yeah. So haters in for three innings. He had four strikeouts, um, didn't give up any runs. And, you know, I think everybody was kind of waiting for the velocity to drop in that that third inning. I think somebody noted like the first fastball he threw was 93 in the inning. But the rest of the time he was basically 94 to 96. So he didn't even throw 30 pitches. No, 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 no. He didn't over pitch at all. So it, it wasn't that much of a problem. And then that opens up the question of could he have gone a little bit longer? Could they have extended him for that fourth inning, fifth yeah, inning? Yeah, I don't know. JP, how long do you think Hader can go? Because it was three innings, and I think there was always that point where you're wondering, like, okay, when's the velocity going to drop? Because Hader gives up home runs if he, you know, the velocity drops and he gets hittable. Like, he gets really hittable. And, and, it, and it happens quick, too. Exactly. But it's also a spot in which you. You can't waste your bullets. A hater was not going to bat. And that's the reason he ended up getting pulled. They ended up actually putting him on deck. Part of it, I I do wonder, was like whether they were trying to play mind games or like whatever the heck it was. But I think they were actually putting him on deck just in case RC was able to get on and they were going to actually ask Hater to bunt. And they were going to try to get him to go for a fourth inning. But once they ended up, it was basically Hater going to stand up there and just be a free out for the second out of the inning that they were like, no, we actually, and they put Domingo Santana in and they actually tried to use because you can't waste your bullets at that point. You have to do everything you can in a one run game to see if you can get a home run. And I don't blame them for that whatsoever. Yeah. You know, try to get, try to get Santana on all of a sudden, you know, you have Kane Yelich to try to knock them in. So it, it is, you got to make those decisions. It's tough, but I don't know three innings and He's pitched a decent amount, even though he didn't get into game six. Hader was up and warming up. He was and up and warming. He threw a lot of pitches in the bullpen without coming in the day before. Well, now he has a long offseason to rest his arm, so. He does. Um, but anyways, yeah, we had Cedeno gave up his hit. Jeffers came in for an inning and a third, uh, gave up the three-run home run to Puig. So that's kind of where, again, things turned after, I should go back, half inning. Kane got on. Kane hit a double. Yeah, it was a double to left field. Yeah, Kane had his double. It looked like Yelich was going to knock one in when uh, – who was the left fielder? Chris Taylor. Chris Taylor. So Taylor made a pretty phenomenal catch. Yeah. I One that, in a series. That was one where – Dodger outfielder catches a series. Both, both the fact that he got to it and then the fact that he kept it in his glove because he was, you know – 
fully extended kind of ranging back over his head to, to catch it and everything like that. So, um, yeah, that sequence really just seemed like he killed the Brewers. But um, you had two innings from Brandon Woodruff after that, 5Ks. Woodruff looked phenomenal again. Yeah, I mean, it is going to be very interesting to see what they decide to try to do with him and Burns next year because I think both of them have really earned the right to try to start yeah. to, to open next year. Um, have so have room for that. Yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit because we do have some questions about Woodruff and the pitching staff for next I had one season, more thing but- before we go on. Jonathan Scope pinch hitting in the second inning with what was it the bases loaded mm-hmm. when that was the when uh, they pulled Shasin he comes in with two outs bases loaded right and so I mean I, I've been a big Scope defender and I, I still think obviously he's coming back next year but it was curious I thought that you went to him instead of somebody who's been hitting like domingo santana in that situation yeah i don't know if they, they were just saving santana for another situation later in the game because they generally burn santana early right santana, santana was scope the first. have been the early pinch hitters yes yeah. but santana is usually the first one to come in and they went with scope in this situation um because granderson's been kind of the late guy off the bench i think because they have defensive flexibility flexibility with him at least so um Walker Bueller was really good. Aside from the home run to Yelich, seven strikeouts and four and two thirds. I mean, coming into the series, JP, you said he was the guy with the best stuff in the Dodgers staff. Yeah, and he pretty much got by with just using his fastball. He did throw some some curveballs a little bit later in his start uh, in Game Seven, but he pretty much was just pumping. 98 99 up in the zone and said i don't think you can hit it and he was right well yeah and if you can throw 98 99 and he sat there for pretty much that entire uh start you know he, he his velocity hadn't dipped when they took him out it's it's going to be hard to deal with so they brought in Uri- urius to uh face um yelich but otherwise it was madsen jensen and kershaw covering the majority of the innings to, to close it out. So, you know, for how much the, the Brewers leaned on a really good bullpen, we saw them face another really good bullpen. Yeah, and I think that Madsen, I, maybe because of his ERA, doesn't necessarily get the attention that he deserves for it. His his changeup has not only been his signature pitch for years, but it's been devastating this year as well. And down the stretch, you saw Braun struggle with it. You saw Mustaka struggle with it. You, saw, I think even Travis Shaw came in for a pinch hit and couldn't handle it. And Madsen was on point. The biggest thing that Madsen does from time to time is he walks people, but he was able to get ahead in in, uh, in counts, and he was able to get to his changeup as quickly as he can. And the thing about Madsen is he's able to throw uh, his changeup against righties or lefties. It doesn't really matter because it's so good. And the fact that he is a big dude, long arms, huge extension to the plate, and the fact that he throws upper 90s with that extension, he's hard to handle. Yeah, so, um, again, it was disappointing the way the season ended, obviously, but, you know, the run was pretty incredible. The run they had to go on in September to win the division, you know, they got game 163 against the Cubs, win that. They ran through the Rockies. They just blitzed the Rockies. There was nothing. The Rockies, they looked like they were on a completely other level. Yeah, and I think the Brewers really put the National League on notice that this isn't a team that was just hot, but I think a lot of people were looking at the Brewers as, oh, this is legitimately a team that's going to be good for multiple seasons to come. I mean, look at what they have under control. They don't lose anybody of of major significance other than some guys that they traded for 
this year. They have, you know, a very good young core of players. And it's it's sort of a mishmash, but like you also just have more pitching depth than I can ever remember having, you know, the Brewers having. Maybe if you go back and look at like the 92 team, I know that they had a very deep pitching staff back then as well. A lot of starters and relievers. Well, but Cal Eldred was also throwing like 260 innings in three three quarters of a season. Right. Yeah. No, Cal Eldred was getting run into the ground. I think D'Amico made his debut. In, but anyway, point is they have a lot of depth on both sides of the ball and they bring basically everybody back and they can... I would assume go out and really continue to add to what they're doing. They're not going to sit on their ass this this post or this uh, off season and not add. They're going to go out and do some things to you know continue to add depth. I think to the roster more so than maybe adding a star. I think you'll you'll see them adding depth. I think one of the interesting things you heard was Chris Taylor after the after the game in Game Seven. He said that he thought that. He, I mean, part of it is you, you always give credit to your opponent and you do all of those things. But he said that in their opinion or in his opinion, he said the Brewers are going to be a force for a while. And he said, give them all the credit in the world because they made the, the series extremely tough. The, the most interesting thing for the Brewers is going to be kind of what they decide to do in the bullpen. Because we saw how great their bullpen was for the vast majority of the year. We heard a lot of theories about bullpenning. We heard a lot of stuff about like, you know, basically John Smoltz and and the Fox Sports one uh, postgame team not understand what teams are trying to do when they throw their bullpen a little bit early. And you do have potentially two of those top bullpen pieces in Woodruff and Burns moving to the rotation. And then suddenly that bullpen looks a little light. So Sori is probably gone unless they decide to pick up a, a big option on him. I don't think that... Uh, I don't think so. Well, I don't actually know if Cedeno has has any options remaining, but uh, he was not overly impressive. And then suddenly your back end of the bullpen is is Jeffress and you have questions about how he's feeling, what kind of workload he had, where the splitter went, how effective he can be without that pitch over the long over the long haul. It's basically uh, Hader and Knable as it currently stands, as your elite pieces. And yeah, they've got a lot of other guys they can throw in there. You've got questions about whether Taylor Williams can become a piece, you know, what form of Jacob Barnes is going to show up. You've got a lot of guys with potential, but in terms of guys that you can really rely on to be dynamic bullpen pieces that made the Brewers what they are this year and made up for the fact that their starting rotation was mediocre at best, they don't have a lot. And so are they going to try to add the starting rotation to keep somebody like Woodruff and Burns as kind of the right-handed Josh Hader? Or are they going to add bullpen pieces? What are they going to do? That's going to be really difficult to see how they uh, they kind of look into the season. Yeah, I mean, I think they showed like Wade Miley is a good example of they're going to keep depth. They're going to see what maintaining that depth does for them before they make decisions to just move guys into the rotation who are younger. So I think a little bit of it is going to be, you know, some wait and see. They're going to just keep as many guys as possible. And then I think they're always going to kind of blur the line between starter and reliever. Um, starters don't go deep. I think you'll see them add relievers this offseason because exactly what JP is talking about to add to the depth. And I, I do think Taylor Williams, Jacob Barnes, don't sleep on Adrian Hauser potentially in that role as well. Um, you have guys that give them that upside, but there is the best spot on the market this winter 
is relief pitchers. There are a lot of good to very good relievers, kind of headlined by Sean Doolittle, uh, that are on the, the market. And I definitely could see them adding that so that they give themselves, hey, here's another bullpen arm that could potentially go multiple innings at, at shots. And let's, you know, start working towards pushing Hader and Burns towards the, the rotation and beefing that up. Woodruff and Burns. What did I say? You said Hader. Ah, that that was not what Jim, I was intending Jim to Bowden say. Jim Bowden over here trying to push Hader into the the rotation. No, we're not we're not doing that. There, no, Josh Hader is not going to the rotation. Let's so just stop that. That's at RD Top. If you want to <laughs> discuss how he and and Jim Bowden are on the same page with Hader going forward. So, anyways, uh, we do have a Patreon question from Michael Heitkamp. He asked, "Do you have concerns uh, with the number of innings pitched out of any of the bullpen arms heading into next season?" I did grab uh, some numbers real quick. Hader pitched 81 and a third innings in the regular season. He pitched another 10 in the postseason. Jeffers pitched 76 and two-thirds in the regular season, eight in the postseason. Other than that, we had Knable in the mid-50s, and Taylor Williams had 53. Um, and nobody else out of the bullpen pitched an, an exceptional number of innings. No, I don't have any concern over even for Hater, even for Jeffress, because Jeffress is kind of uh, maybe the only person that you might have questions about. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the amount he was used. I think it's just a lot of questions about health in terms of how he's doing uh, kind of off the field um, in terms of dealing with kind of longstanding health issues that he's had, whether something's up with his elbow in terms of why he's abandoned a pitch. But I don't think that has to do with volume of usage and the thing is i i i understand why people go and grab the number of innings that a hater has pitched that that's not really relevant when he's getting ample time to rest right he's and, being used in a way we've really not seen guys be used yeah i feel like it was 81 innings but you know 52 appearances or yeah something? the appearances don't match the number of innings pitched so you're you're not throwing as many pitches warming up you know you have more time in between appearances so it's an interesting situation how they've managed hater how do, do you think they maintain that going forward jp yeah i do i think that they want hater to be a guy that they can absolutely lock down a close game if they need to to be able to number one the first thing it does is it actually saves the vast majority of the bullpen and gives everybody else an off day if he can go two or three innings and absolutely lock it down they don't have to worry about a lot of other guys going which is likely why in, in addition to the fact that they shuttled guys between triple a and and the majors which is something that if you do look at the number of innings pitched from relievers it probably needs to include triple a um, to be able to kind of give a holistic look at that. But they were able to then go and get guys like Cedeno. They were able to go and get guys like uh, like Soria, right? And so they were getting guys to be able to come in, which put a lot less pressure on their middle relievers that would have otherwise racked up the the number of innings that it goes. So I think Hader gives them a really interesting way that they can uh, span multiple innings, kind of lock games down, but able to save other guys that they don't have to cover four innings with four guys they can maybe do it with two yeah it, it's i think they found hopefully a recipe with hater where they can maximize his innings without without maximizing basically stress on his arm yeah that I, this formula makes a lot of sense 
So we'll see how it goes next season. But yeah, overall, the bullpen wasn't used in such a way that I think we have to worry about everybody being burned out. There's probably some some consideration they have to take into account for a couple guys, but overall, they should be all right. So uh, we have a Patreon question from Jeffrey Emenecker. Uh, he asked, do you think Woodruff is a lock for the rotation next year with his performance in September and October? And he was he was really the emerging star for the Brewers in this playoff run. A lock? No, because we've seen th- they're weird about this in general, but they've been particularly weird about Brandon Woodruff. They've been hesitant to just hand him a starting gig and let him go. So I wouldn't say he's a lock at all. I would like to see it. I think he, you know, I I want him to get that shot, but I wouldn't say it's a lock. Well, and they also have, you know, Jimmy Nelson coming back, presumably. Um, you know, I, Zach, Zach Davies was out most of the year. Yeah, Zach Davies' injury, I think, affected that more than anything. And, and they're going to want Davies to have a spot. You know, Chase Anderson obviously has a contract. I mean, what do you see as far as uh, rotation management going into next season, JP? I think it'll. I think one of Burns or Woodruff are going to for sure be moving to the rotation, and it's going to, I think, really be dependent upon which of those arms they think fits best in the bullpen. Because if they do, I I personally think that both probably move to the the rotation, uh, kind of depending on what uh, what else they do with offseason moves and what they do with the bullpen. I think there's a lot of, as both of you rightly pointed out there's a lot of opportunities that they can do with the depth that they're going to be able to amass but i think that largely on paper right now it makes sense for both of those guys to move to the rotation but if only one does there's questions of which one actually fits better in the bullpen and right now i actually think it might be burns uh i think that that woodruff was able to throw uh three pitches for strikes he was able to throw uh both sides of the quadrant uh and or both sides of the quadrant. That didn't even make any sense. Uh, both sides <laughs> of the plate in all sections of the quadrant. Um, and they were able to give him an opportunity to go multiple innings. Uh, and the fact that they were willing to turn to him, I think it was in game five when he went, what, four or five innings? And yes. And he he looked like the guy that they were kind of third third most confident in if you want to say that in terms of being able to go multiple innings as a quote-unquote starter would do oh yeah it was definitely it was Hader, Knable, and then Woodruff was the guy they wanted to get in but they knew they needed to use him for multiple innings so you saw him as basically he was the piggyback starter well Uh, and in the case of game five you know he was though Miley came in for the first out Woodruff was the starter How's this for a guy who could potentially take on that role of being a two to three inning reliever to to compliment Hater? How about Junior Guerra for that role? I mean, I could see that being a thing as well. He seemed to do well in it and adjust well to it in the postseason and in late September and handle it well. And he is still under team control for a good long time here. And I could see him potentially being uh, a guy that they would use in that that sort of situation as yeah well. you have Guerra. i mean we haven't even talked about freddie peralta what they want to do with him i mean obviously he can still go down um to where they at san antonio next year yeah you go down to san antonio instead of colorado springs and he can still be a starter down there so uh, again like we were saying they have options i would say if i had any confidence that junior Guerra could find the zone for more than like a month at a time i would agree with you that he's an option for the bullpen to be able to be like a right-handed hater sort of thing but we've seen i mean like yeah you guys are laughing but like 
we've seen it what three years in a row where he can find the zone and look really good for a month month and a half in a row and then suddenly he's borderline unplayable and being sent to triple a or relegated to the bullpen and not used all that much and then suddenly comes back and he's able to be used again but he is the exact type of arm that if you can get something out of him, it's great, but you're not going to rely on him. I think that the Brewers have looked at, looked at that over three years and realized that that's not really a viable plan. Right. I, I'm not saying you're necessarily relying on him, but when he does give you that option and the fact that you have other guys that could potentially be in that role as well. Jordan Lyles is a guy who was sneaky better than people realized when he was with the Brewers this year. And so he's a guy that could potentially hang around as well and find himself in that yeah, that I think, sort of role as well. I think partly JP's point, and I'm I'm speaking for him here, is just that I, you use Gara when he's hot, but I don't think you make big plans around how you're going to use Gara for a full season. So, well, no, but if you have I, a bunch I, of guys that are like that, then yeah. But I also think that it's a thing if you're trying to figure out how your bullpen looks, your plan for the bullpen isn't just let's have a bunch of guys and let's hope it works out, right? Like your plan for the bullpen is to be able to say. Uh, you know, we're going to have three or four guys that we can really build this bullpen around. And then after that, you try to have a mass of guys that you can kind of move in and out and, and hopefully you get a good piece of. And we had talked about the fact that Burns was, in addition to to Hader, Knable, and in some ways, you know, Jeffress, but down the stretch, it was really Soria. And we said you needed to have four guys that they could really build the bullpen around. And then after that, there was a lot of guys and a lot of moving pieces that could really make the team or the bullpen dynamic. And right now, if you if you move Burns and Woodruff to the rotation, they don't have a core of four bullpen arms to be able to go in. And I and I take your point about looking at the the free agent market and saying that that's a place where they can go and look. The one thing I would say about that is if there is one place that people are willing to spend money, and there are if there's one place in which there is a bidding war for. Uh, for for arms that are going to go up and up and up. And last year we saw kind of guys slip down to the end because we didn't, you know, we had like what, four or five teams that were really willing to participate in the free agent market. That was not true for the bullpen. And I think if you start to see more and more teams with limited starting rotations try to do what the Brewers did to be able to go through it, you're going to see more and more demand for those uh, relief arms. And I think that it's going to be really difficult for the Brewers unless they're willing to overpay, which again, they have not shown any willingness to do whatsoever. Uh, they're going to really have a hard time getting those, those bullpen arms that they want. Do we think that the Brewers may be forced other teams to consider getting into free agency a little bit uh, more in this offseason? Because, you know, the Brewers were looked at, even with the moves they made coming into the season, as a mid-80s win team, not a playoff lock by any means, and they end up, you know, basically winning the NL. They're the, you know, number one seed in the playoffs here. So do you think some more teams that are maybe marginal contenders are going to jump in this offseason? I think it obviously is going to depend on what you mean by jump in. I the the biggest reason the Brewers went and got Lorenzo Kane. That's what they got in the free agent market. Yeah, they got to, they got Shasin, but there was a lot of arms I could have. But got. that's an uh, that's an eighty million dollar contract. It's not nothing. Absolutely, but the only way that they did the Kane deal was because they went and got Yelich first. So yeah, if there is a team that's willing to be able to to go and I don't know who that Lorenzo Kane is this offseason. What is AJ Pollock? That might be it. Yeah, that uh, that sounds like that would make sense. 
And so if you're going to do that, you're, if you are a mid, you know, I don't know, like a mid 80 or low 80 win team, AJ Pollock's not going to be the difference. And I understand what you're saying, but like, yeah, there's, there are not more teams that are going to be willing to go and give those contracts that they don't want to give just because the Brewers were able to find success. You might see more teams uh, acquire more pieces. I, I think that the trade market might be a little bit more wide open this year, but I still think the the biggest trend that we've seen year on year, and I think this is going to continue to be true uh, outside of, you know, Machado and Harper that are trying to get the biggest contracts is free agency is still not a place where you can go get anything. I mean, if you wanted to look at the starting rotation right now and say that go and get a starter, like Ryu is one of the the best options and he's got a checkered injury history where that's not really something that you want to go and look at. Like again, and you've got so many people that are going to go and want to get starting pitching and you still look at it and say, well, is that really even an option you want to look at? It's not really going to fix anything. It's still just going to be the trade market. Well, and we Dallas saw how Ky- we saw how checkered injury histories worked out this past off season for pitching. And Keuchel's another guy with a checkered injury history. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, Keuchel is really the top guy. Uh, one guy that I find interesting is Garrett Richards, if the because he's going to be recovering from Tommy John surgery. <laughs> Get him, get him those, on one of those two-year deals where you pay him like a million dollars to rehab this year, and then like four million dollars for next year or whatever, and see that's, if that's not solving anything for the 2019 season, though. No, 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 but it, it is a potential way to add depth down the road, and I mean, he could potentially be back late this year. But hold on, just a list of the the relievers because it is extensive. Cody Allen, Brad Brock, Zach Britton, uh, as I said before, Sean Doolittle, Juris Familia is out there. You have um, Joe Kelly is out there. Ryan Madsen, who we were just talking about earlier. Andrew Miller, Adam Adovino, uh, David Robertson, Trevor Rosenthal, Hector Rondon, uh, Mark Zubchinsky, uh, Soria, who we've talked about, obviously, here. Uh, Justin Wilson is out there. Brad Ziegler is out there. You have a lot of guys who yeah. could potentially much- add to uh, contribute to the bullpen in the late innings. How many of those guys are going to be anchors in a bullpen? Five? But you don't need them to necessarily be an anchor. You need them to be a part of a group of guys who are... Because Josh Hader and Jeremy Jeffress and potentially, you know, one of one of Burns or Woodruff, whoever... But Knable's going to be there. Oh, I'm sorry. Knable, too. So, like I'm saying, you don't necessarily need a guy to be an anchor. You need him to be part of your your collection there. And there's plenty of options for guys to be part of that group but but the but the point isn't so like and and i i get what you're saying and i understand that i'm like splitting hairs here but there's i don't again when it was the exact same thing that we talked about with the starting rotation how many of those guys are really better than what they've got internally in terms of their error bars in terms of like what their volatility is right? but it isn't necessarily and, about being better it's just about adding to the collection of good yeah, but that, that was the entire argument about adding guys like Alex Cobb or adding guys like Lance Lynn is getting another option to be able to move in there. And that's not always something that you're really adding when roster spots are at a minimum. You're going to want to be able to say, is somebody a better option than what we've got? Somebody that we can really rely upon. Otherwise, why not just go? Because if you're going to do that, then you're just going to wait for your Matt Albers signing that's gonna you know be your one year three million dollar deal and he's good for a couple months and then gets injured and you just kind of throw him aside uh or you 
like do your Soria, where again, he was good, but he wasn't great. And he wasn't somebody they were relying upon in the bullpen in, in the postseason. And actually he wasn't, I, I argue that he wasn't really that great in the in in the postseason. No, he was terrible. But I, he could have been. He could have. I mean, he could have been. He could have been, but he was terrible. So I was I was afraid every time Soria came in. But anyways, we're gonna move on. Uh, we have a Patreon question from Chad Ferris. He says, "I know the numbers don't support it over the season, but in the playoffs, when teams are facing close scores against top tier pitching, does it ever make sense to try and play small ball and bunt twice with good batters to get a single run across?" I mean, when you're talking about bunting for hits, I never argue about. Oh, I don't guys think he's, he's not hits. talking about bunting for hits. He's talking about bunting to move guys into scoring position to score one run. Yeah, I don't. Well, and I think um, part of the issue with this series, like we were talking about earlier, is we had you know five four games or seven to two games or something like that. I don't think either team was really playing for like a single run other than you know the thirteen inning game. Right, and I mean, there are certain specific situations where it does make sense, especially in low-run scoring environments, to do that. But then you have to have guys capable of doing it, right? You have to have guys who are capable of putting down the bunts and making it a successful strategy that way. And I don't think you go out and you acquire guys for their ability to do that. That's, you know, that's He's very... He's just asking if if you're in the postseason like that, if it's worth it. Um I'm going to say probably not in the early situations that he's asking about. Because, yeah, when you get later into a game where one run is the difference between winning and losing, that changes the calculus a little bit. Oh, it changes it a lot. But it's still, even in those situations, it's usually still a bad call unless it's the the classic one is the first and second with uh, no outs. Yeah. That's the classic bunt. JP, did you enjoy the the commentary this offseason about how small ball turned into just guys getting hits? Did you catch that? I didn't catch that. But in general, if you ask me, did I enjoy the commentary, that answer is no. <laughs> because that tended to be a lot of the talk, you know, with the way the series was going. It was playing more small ball, and it was because a guy got a hit and it wasn't a home run, it was automatically small ball, which is an odd definition. I, I to, to answer the question more directly, I actually think that that is, in today's environment, a, a really poor way of, of producing runs. And it's not because... It's not because like the math isn't I I don't want to make a mathematical argument about like run expectancy or anything like that. But I think if you are trying to put guys into into scoring position, if you're trying to bunt somebody to first to second, then you're saying that, you know what, like then you're going to try to advance the runner to third and then get a base hit Um, in today's environment in which, uh, again, Brewers set the record for the most strikeouts in the NLCS. If you're in a situation in which guys are striking out more and more because a swing plane changes, but B and most most importantly, and the Brewers fans should recognize this from their bullpen, uh, pitchers are striking out more guys because they've got better stuff. You've got guys like Corbin Burns coming in and saying, well, I'm going to throw a 97 mile an hour cutter. Good luck. And you don't really know what to do with that. If if you're going to start bunting guys and costing yourself outs, you're going to see more and more people strike out with two with uh two outs or not be able to advance guys to third uh and it's just going to be a much more difficult proposition for that and i think that the brewers and craig council in particular uh there was the the anecdote about prince fielder where i guess craig council said told prince fielder if he tried to bunt for a hit he was going to punch him in the face um and which obviously just made everybody laugh in general but 
I think that Craig Council understands in today's environment if you're going to start doing that, because then basically what will happen is if everybody starts bunting, then everyone's going to start complaining about everyone striking out or complaining about people not being able to hit with runners in scoring position. And that's not to question. I understand the point because in some ways you're saying if you're striking out more and more, if you are in a position in which you are getting fewer hits, do you try to make those hits more advantageous or do you try to be able to score more runs with, you know, pass balls, with wild pitches, with things like that. And we actually saw that. I believe it was against, well, even against Grandall, Grandall a little bit, right? Where you were able to, to, to score a couple of runs via pass balls or wild pitches. Um, I understand the point, but I think with, with strikeouts the way that they are, with teams shifting the way that they are, with uh, guys being able to have more power pitches just come on. You know, like, I, you're not going to get much uh, bunting against Walker Bueller. He's just going to throw 99 at the top of the zone, and you're going to either hit it a long way or you, like you don't want to turn you don't want to turn around to try to square that one up when it's coming 99 and probably in on your hands. Yeah, but that's not something that would be on my wish list. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's I do think you're going to see. And there was this this talk of like Theo Epstein saying that the the shift is going to be played out of baseball soon anyway because. Uh, guys in the minors are learning how to to hit around it, and we haven't seen that. But that's it is a, a famous quote from him that he said that we haven't think- seen that yet. But like the the main thing is if you can have guys who do know how to bunt for hits when they're being extreme shifted, and there's a whole big open space, especially up the third base side, you know. Maybe that, that's maybe you get it. Maybe you get it in that case. But again, when guys are bringing more velocity because of the way that pitchers are being used, the idea that they're going to spot their hits in particular parts of the field to hit around the shift is probably some bullshit. Right, and that's that's really hard. Like well, we're talking I mean, about a guy, you know, throwing. Like you're talking about not, guy. Everybody's throwing ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight now. So trying to directionally hit when people are throwing that velocity, no. That's not really going to happen. Theo Epstein's also wrong. So, I mean, that that's a piece of it, right? Like, we can, like, just because Theo Epstein said it doesn't make it true. Like, Theo Epstein's just not right. Because uh, if if they have a situation, because basically what he's saying is guys are going to be able to hit around the shift. Um, so, A, they're not going to be able to do that for power. Or B, you're you're going to it, that becomes even much more difficult because one of the big things that you do as a pitcher is you pitch to be able to make them hit into the shift. You just because they're shifting doesn't mean you're suddenly going to try to give them low and soft stuff on the outside so they can poke it to the opposite field for a hit. No, you're going to punch them in and you're going to try to throw them everything on the inner part so they have to hit it into the shift. It's it's not everything isn't just on the hitter whether or not they can actually do these sorts of things. And then if you're somebody like Yelich who can use the entire field, what they end up doing is the normal outfield, like probably roll your eyes at this, but like the normal outfield configuration is a shift of sorts. You're trying to cover the most out. You're trying to cover the most space in which somebody might hit it. Like, and so basically what they're going to do is they're going to say, Oh, look on fastballs in you most of the time hit it here. And what you might see is them start to, I don't know, like shift in the middle of at bats based on where they want to start pitching guys. We're already seeing it. We we're watching it constantly on Friday night with people making moves, especially on the infield, but outfielders move around a little bit too out there, but especially on the infield, there's all kinds of things that happen in the middle of an at bat when somebody gets to two strikes, 
the the infielders start moving. And this was both the Dodgers and the Brewers. Mm-hmm. I mean, two progressive teams who I think really, really look at these numbers. It was, you know, I, and I think we like to look at the Brewers as, you know, trying to squeeze the most out of a roster as possible. But the Dodgers are a team with money and also doing the exact same thing. Right. They're just doing it on a much higher level because they have the money to be able to spend. One thing I think we should point out, too, I think a big part of why the team became so confident in Wade Miley was that he was willing to execute their game plan the way JP's talking about, where he's throwing the pitches to help be to to play into their shifts. And he was willing to to execute that game plan. And I wonder if maybe Chase Anderson was less able and willing to do that. You can't shift over the fence. There, and that's where that Anderson too. had a lot of problems. So, you know, I think I don't know. Chase Anderson going forward, I'm sure we'll get into this in, in the offseason. Wasn't there a question about him? There was. Again, we're going to get into that stuff in the offseason. Okay. There's so much game stuff that we can currently talk about that yeah, I'm, I am saving questions. Um, but uh, on, on Wade Miley, though, like part of it is definitely pitching into what they're trying to do. But Wade Miley basically was able to... If you look at his numbers over the course of the year, he had a reverse platoon split because basically he just just mashed cutters in on people's hands and then went curveball or he went uh, change up away. That was what he did against righties pretty much every single time that he was able to do. He broke a couple of bats in game two doing that. And he really handcuffed righties throughout the entire piece. And so what it allowed him to do because he was, he was spotting his cutter so well is he was able to make guys and, 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 and right-handers basically hit into the shifts that we're, that we're talking about, right? But it's it's all about the type of pitches you throw, too, because you're not going to be Chase Anderson throwing 92 miles an hour up in the zone. That's not playing into any shift. That's just hoping, you know, your, your fly ball goes to the outfield. Yeah, so um, we're going to wrap this up pretty quick. Uh, but I will say we, we have a lot of questions today. I am going to save them, so we're going to have those in in following podcasts a lot of them were like what are we going to do with roster decisions uh going forward um but i do want to get this one a patreon question from caleb kleinhans he asked very basic uh but do you think we get to the world series next year or what do you think we need to do to get to the world series next year is it starting pitching they're gonna need to stay healthy that's gonna be the biggest thing because they had very good health look this year they really did not have a lot of guys miss a lot of time due to injury, and that will be the thing. Eh, they really didn't. Think about it. They really didn't. Kane missed time. Canable went down right away. They missed They missed part of the season. They missed chunks. But nobody – I mean, you lost Brent Suter for the second half, and he was a good but not flashy great starter. But really, by they and didn't large, have, in baseball – They didn't have uh, – what's his name? Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy well, they Nelson. didn't have Nelson. Zach Davies. Oh. Zach Davies did miss time. I'm blanking on all the pitching pitchers. They didn't have, like, you know, Matt, half Matt their El- pitching staff. Like, Matt, well, I Matt mean, Elbers. Matt, I, I, Matt Elbers, like, functionally died in, like, June. Lorenzo Cain played 141 games. Christian Yelich played 147. Sure, yes. Their position Shaw played players, 152. For the most part, their pitching staff was not particularly healthy. I mean... The reason why we ignored is because they missed so much time that we didn't even count on them anymore. Do you know why the Cubs didn't win the Central Division this year? Because they're assholes. Well, there's that. But, I mean, Chris Bryant was hurt for a huge chunk of the season. Like, their best player was 
diminished like for a good chunk of the season. Their big pitching, starting pitching acquisition in the offseason was trash. The Brewers did not have two of their top starters. The Brewers did not have two of their top starters for the entire season. The Cubs, the Cubs did not win the NL Central because they signed Tyler Chatwood as their like solution to all their problems, and they didn't realize that he was bad, which is like what everybody was saying prior to well, the year. I mean, the, it helps. Darvish. It Darvish helps if the Brewers the, make better decisions, though. Too. I mean, you're trying. Everybody dealt with injuries. No, no, no. I'm saying the Brewers had a pretty healthy season. Yeah, uh, this is only, not- but they all, only if you look at September. If you look at September, they yeah they they did have a lot of guys that were healthy. Braun was missing three or four days a week early on. Eric Thames got hurt for a long time and ended up becoming a, a non-factor after that. You had a situation in which Kane was missing time early in the year. You had uh, Knable gone, and then after he was gone, he came back and was not really that effective for a while. Zach Davies was gone. You had Brent Suter gone. Like you can go down the list, and what you're saying, and I understand, is that. They did not get key injuries to their best players for a long period of time. They did not go throughout the entire course of the season without injuries. And and I know that's not what you're saying, but they also were plagued by a lot of injuries over the course of a long period. And we talked about that just prior to the All-Star break because everyone was hurt. Everyone was on the DL. Right. There was there was a time when that was. Yeah that they had they had that issue i'm not going to argue with that but yeah but so and then finally uh sean andrews on twitter he asks uh oh you want to get one more thing in jp uh, he didn't answer I would the like question. question oh uh so i will say what they need to be able to do to get to the world series is they actually need to add a couple more bats I think that unless if Mustakas comes back, that I would consider that adding a bat because I don't think it's any it's any guarantee whatsoever that he does come back. But they need to be able to add probably a catcher. They maybe need to add something. Maybe Keston Hura is going to be the answer at second base. If not, you know, shoot, hopefully Scope is the answer. But at third base, they could potentially get better. Uh, I don't necessarily know if Aguilar is the guy that you want to start every single day at first base. There's a lot of questions on whether or not that'll be a platoon, but there are a lot of like ifs throughout the entire batting order. Yeah, Ryan and I got in that argument earlier this week where I said Aguilar is not a guy we should count on next season, and don't be surprised if it's maybe maybe Moose comes back. They pick up that option. Um, Shaw starts at second base. And then if there's struggles with Aguilar, it becomes a platoon between Sean Aguilar and maybe we get Hero up at that point. Well, and we're forgetting Eric Thames. Eric Thames is their backup plan at first base right now. That's He's there and he's under contract. and He know, is. I, I think they'll give him time. I think if he's injured or ineffective in the final year of his contract, they won't have a problem cutting him loose. No, they won't. They'll, they'll move on from him. Which is all part of the whole Shaw goes over to first and you have a platoon there. But let's not forget, Eric Thames did hit 30-plus bombs last year so, i understand but eric thames has also dealt with injuries for two straight seasons and faded because of that sure. so um, well, they got rid of, uh, they also got rid of chris carter after he hit basically 40 bombs like that's not necessarily everything right right and but I, i'm just saying depth he adds depth at first base oh he, cer- he certainly does but i think if you right if they go into next year with pina and kratz at, at catcher that's a problem yeah for 162 games we don't want to see that grand all that no I do not want to see Yasmani Grandal on this I team. I mean, he's normally I swear a, to God, not a terrible defensive I swear, catcher. The Brewers, that was weird. the Brewers would have won the series if they could have forced Grandal back into the game at some point last night. 
Because yeah. he was so bad defensively. He was just brutal. But he is the best pitch that was, framer in baseball. I wanted, He's the best pitch I framer this, in baseball. It doesn't matter if you can't block a pitch. He can. He doesn't normally have that level of problems. He had a. He was on a really bad run. He Yeah, he definitely Defensively, was. Defensively, so. he is one of the best the better defensive catchers, mostly because of the framing, but he's not terrible at this other stuff. We saw him in a bad way. Yeah, we did. And he is a He was going to cost the Dodgers that series. He is a legit bat. Yeah. Like, there is a lot to say about that bat. I would say if he were as good as you're saying he is, the Dodgers would sign him and not make him available to anybody else. (laughs) Well, I mean, they they also have to try to work around the... uh, the soft cap we should just call it a cap at this point so finally uh sean andrews on twitter asks what's the best way to drown out your sorrows booze exercise work primal scream therapy any preferences ryan (laughs) i i did find during this season that uh getting on my bike and exercising during games was helpful (laughs) it was probably much more productive than uh having a beer so jp what do you do (laughs) Or, or what are you doing at this point to deal with it uh, I, I'm, I'm okay. So I'm not really doing that much. Um, but I would say when I do get upset about, uh, any kind of events or I am trying to do, I actually get a whole lot of housework done. I do the dishes and laundry and do all of that. And it allows me to be productive and, uh, channel my, my, uh, anger into something else. Here is a moment where I'm glad that my wife does not listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to say that. I mean, it's disappointing. They they had an opportunity to go the World Series. It didn't happen in a Game 7. But I'm not disappointed in this team in any way. So it's hard to be, like, angry or upset in any way. So I love this team. This is It's great. This is the dream. This is what we were... I feel like this is the dream team that I have wanted the Brewers to have for a very long time. Well, and I From think... the unlike, top on down. Unlike, management... All of it. Yeah, and I think unlike 2008 and even 2011, this team doesn't feel like a culmination and a last gasp when they get into the playoffs. No. We look at it and we say, this team's going to be back, and we don't see any, you know, areas that were were like, they're going to have some major loss, and they're not going to be able to make up for it in some some way. And, like, if they win 85 games next year, I'm not going to be surprised because that's baseball. Like, you get those backs and forth and whatever. Like, that's not going to surprise me. But I don't think it has to go that direction. I don't think there's major down arrows on this team. And well, it's wonderful. I, say, I also think, and this is going to be a very unpopular opinion. So if you would like to tell me about it, it is JP underscore Breen on Twitter. If you'd like to let me know. I don't think a season is a failure if they don't make the World Series. <laughs> That's controversial. Well, it is. There are so many people that have said, uh, how are you happy with what happened because they ended up losing? Right? Yeah, like, I mean, there's there, there, there are always the fans who, regardless of what happens in a season, if it ends with a loss, which basically every season is going to end with a loss or a non-playoff appearance. Except for one team. Yeah, yeah except for one team. Right. The point of it. Feel, but, but the thing is, look at what the Nationals have gone through. Look at what the Dodgers have gone through. They're basically saying that if you make the playoffs again and again and again and you don't make the World Series is an absolute failure. You look at what people are saying about the Packers in which they're wasting things because they're not winning you know, the Super Bowl and they're going through all of these things. If you make the postseason and you go to a Game 7 in NLCS, like you were one of... You were one of the four best teams in the, all of baseball over what? I mean, if you take into two two postseason series into consideration, that's almost 180 games. Like, 
you were wonderful. You were a really good team. And the thing that people do not want to talk about is the fact that basically things like what we saw in the NLCS comes down to to luck at the end of the day and some like game of inches. And right. sometimes you're on the right side of it, sometimes you're not on the right side of it. But basically, like they gave us so much of a better season than I expected. They gave us so many like really great things to be able to look back on. And as you said, this was one of the most fun teams we've had. Yes. And you also got free burgers from George Webb. So don't uh, ignore that. Fact. I was just going to make a they're wasting Christian Yelich's prime joke. But then JP went and well, mentioned the Rogers thing. So I, I would also say that it doesn't make the season worse because people had to go and get George Webb burgers. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing about this too is, yeah, I know we have a team that is really fun. Like this, this team was, you had a lot of players individually who are fun and that also really contributes to the, just the general happiness around the team. They did have, you know, some, in 162 games, it was you're going to have a grinding It was parts, fun, but, but remember the ebbs and flows of this season. Right. Because there was definitely portions of the season where everybody was distraught that this team was falling apart. Right. August looked like a death march, even though they were like 500. July before the All-Star game was about as low as it could get when you get a five-game sweep against the uh, Pirates. Yeah, there was plenty of times where people were not happy with the way things were going. And if uh, some of the... I don't think it was any of our listeners. I'm pretty sure they were a lot of Cubs fans or a lot of people that, you know, kind of were not following the podcast. But all of those people on Twitter who told me that the Brewers were finished after July and that, like, the Pirate series showed that they were not a, a winning team, uh, you know, you can email us in and tell us what you're thinking because we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> that was a crotch chop. So take yeah. it out on a crotch chop. There you go. Uh, oh, you can oh. you can email milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or you can send those tweets to JP underscore Breen on twitter i'd love to hear them and i do think that and in all honesty baseball needs more crotch chopping because that was what one of the things that made the nlcs more fun was the fact that you had people on the other side that you just wanted to see fail and there weren't a cup so they can go all out with it so anyways that's going to do it for this week's show uh you can join our patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mke tailgate patrons at the ball and glove level will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast and as always follow us on twitter at mke tailgate you can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our facebook page for milwaukee's tailgate baseball podcast and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and we're now on Spotify. Uh, you can leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.
It's all over now, baby blue. 